We are exploring some of the points of Lakotei Sichas, Volume 16, Yisrael, essay number four. This is a very good example of a Rashi Sicha, which nominally is based on Pshutei Shomikra, the literal interpretation of the text and context, and while at the same time, the wine of Torah, that in that interpretation is hinted and embedded deeper levels of Torah study, and in this Sicha, even mystical, Kabbalistic levels and important ideas of Hasidus, very special. The Rebbe bases the Sicha on two verses in the portion. There are a number of other verses that the Rebbe alludes to. I'm going to keep it simple, streamline it in those two verses. One verse is written before the Ten Commandments and one right after. <coughs> the one before says, Vayered Hashem al Har Sinai, the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. The one right after the Ten Commandments says, that God says to the people, you have seen I have addressed you from heaven. This seems to be a conflict. Did he come down? Or did he address it from heaven? And again, if you read the Sikha, you know that there are other verses that weigh into this conflict. There's a verse in Deuteronomy, which seems to say a little bit of both. And there's a, but I'm just going to, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to just stick to those two. And Rashi addresses this conflict, this seeming conflict. But what's interesting is Rashi addresses it not once but twice. He addresses it in both of these verses. That's strange. Normally Rashi would wait until the second time when the conflict becomes an issue and raise it. And if he raises it once, why again? And if Rashi does, uh, so A, number one, why does he repeat the interpretation? But B, the interpretation is different the second time around. There are occasions in Torah where you'll have, so to speak, the same Rashi twice rarely, but it could be because in the first instance, Rashi explained it in detail, and then he just jogs your memory and, and, and writes uh, very briefly a reminder of what he already said. In this case, the second Rashi is much longer than the first. As we'll see, the first Rashi only has one answer, the second one has two. Plus, that original answer is repeated again in the second Rashi, but not shorter, longer. So this is very strange. People who don't take Rashi seriously, as the Rebbe does, say, well, Rashi said this, then he said that. The Rebbe teaches us that Rashi, this is Torah, every single word is perfect. He's addressing the same issue. Why these two verses seem to be saying opposites? Did God come down, or did he address us from heaven? And he answers this question twice and makes important distinctions between them. Let's take a look. So right on top of your screen, you have the text of the two verses, Exodus 19, verse 20, and Exodus 20, verse 19. And it's a very obvious seeming conflict. God descended on Mount Sinai, or I've spoken to you from heaven. Rashi addresses both of these verses. In the first instance, in chapter 19, Rashi says, he bent down the upper and lower heavens and spread them on the mountain like bedspread. And the throne of glory descended upon them. In the second instance, Rashi says, Two interpretations. Number, number two is going to be very similar to the one we already learned, but number one is a whole different one. His glory is in heaven and his fire and might are upon the earth. That's one interpretation. And that's the first one, which means Rashi sees that as the more plain, more obvious one. Not that he bent down heaven. He in fact stayed in heaven and his fire came down, his might. 
which is strange that he changes the interpretation. And then the second commentary, Rashi is not happy with that. So he gives a second commentary and he says, seems to be identical to the first Rashi, that he brought the heavens down to earth. So he's addressing them from heaven, but he's uh, descending upon earth. But here, the Rebbe points out, A, why the repetition, but B, why all the variables, all the changes? Take a look at, at the difference between the interpretation here, number two, to the way it appears early, earlier in the earlier Rashi. Firstly, in the earlier Rashi, it says he bent down the upper and lower heavens. And here it says he bent down the heavens and the higher heavens. This is Rashi. Every word has to be precise. There was no need even to, to elaborate. But he does elaborate, and he elaborates different on each one. Secondly, in the first instance, he says he spread them, he spread them on the mountain like a bedspread. In the second instance, he just said he spread them, spread them out on the mountain. Also, in the first instance, he adds that the throne of glory descended upon them. Like, why is that needed? And conversely, in the second instance, he brings a verse to prove it, as if he needs a verse from Tanakh. He brings a verse to prove it from the book of Psalms. He bent the heavens down and descended. If that verse is needed to substantiate Rashi's commentary, it was needed already in chapter 19. So this is very curious to the Rebbe, to a serious student of Rashi. And the Rebbe answers, again, I'm doing this fairly generally, <clears throat> that the two Rashi's are in fact different because the verses are in different contexts even though they both discuss God's relationship to the Jewish people at Sinai. In chapter 19, the context is to show that God came down. That's the whole discussion there. God is coming down. Make a fence around the mountain. People could die. The mountain's going to go up in flames. Back them up for three days. This is serious. Only you and Aaron to come up, etc., etc. The context there is God is coming down, and therefore, Rashi uses language that brings home that message, as we'll see. Whereas in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments were already said. What's the context there? God says to the people, you see that I've spoken to you from heaven. Don't worship any of the uh, heavenly planets or sun, moon, stars, and spheres. Because I'm in heaven. Trust me, I'm in charge. Don't be impressed by the other servants of mine in heaven. They're merely just that. They're merely my servants. Uh, don't be impressed by them. Because this was common for idolatry. Idolatry was nominally worshiping the, the sun, the sun were worshiping stars. In fact, the, 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 the term in Torah often of worshiping idols is avodat kachavim. Certainly in, in Chazal and the works of our sages, the worship of stars, because it's impressive. The stars are so mighty, it is so numerous, and there's so many messages and so much power upon nature, etc., etc., and therefore, this was commonplace to worship those giant servants of God in heaven. And therefore, right after the Ten Commandments, don't make a graven image of those heavenly planets, etc. So there are two themes. The theme that says God is down here and watch out for that mountain. And the theme of God is up there. So don't be impressed with anything else. So based on that, Rashi answers the question differently. The conflict. In the first instance, if we're trying to bring out that God descends, so Rashi says, first of all, he, he bent down the upper and the lower heavens. 
talking about gradations, the upper and the lower, talking about bringing down. It's a language that, that denotes gradations. He spread them onto the mountain like a bedspread, which means he didn't just bring it down, but like a bedspread, which becomes part of the bed. The bedspread is not the bed, but once you make the bed with it, it's now bed. God brought the heavens to the mountain, to the earth, and then this heavens became like a bedspread onto the mountain, denoting again the closeness. Whereas in the other Rashi, in the first instance, Rashi doesn't even say that God came down. Remember here, the idea is to keep God on high. And he's the power in heaven. And don't be impressed with the other planets and stars and sun and moon, etc. And therefore, the first answer is his glory is in heaven, meaning he's in heaven. His fire and might are upon earth, but he's in heaven because that's the emphasis there. But then Rashi answers. Then Rashi answers. Uh, another answer, because I guess Rebbe doesn't address this in detail, but uh, I guess that answer is not sufficient because there is, after all, a verse that says God descended. So you can't just say he's in heaven, he sent down his glory. It says God descended. So he repeats the answer in answer number two that he already said in the earlier chapter, but he changes the words to suit the theme. And what does he say? He bent down the heavens and the higher heavens. Same idea, but the emphasis is not higher and lower, meaning gradations coming down and down, but rather the heavens and even the higher heavens actually going up, so to speak. It's making God bigger and further away. And he spread them on the mountain, but he doesn't say the, the detail like a bedspread. That's not the idea that they became part of earth, but rather that they, they're, they're, they're above earth. And for this, he needs a verse. And the verse says, he bent the heavens and descended. Again, not saying that he, he came down and he, he became close to earth like a bedspread. He just bent them over like someone who leans over. He didn't actually come. He didn't arrive. He just leaned over. So all of these things denote the distance, the loftiness of God on high. Whereas in the left column, chapter 19, the, time, the context is God's actual descent. What about the last line in this Rashi here? Uh, the Rebbe says, this too denotes that God comes down. When you say a throne of glory, his chair. A chair means you sit down. You didn't just show up. You know, if someone comes to your house to talk to you and they're standing in the doorway, that's one thing. But if they come and sit down, they're going to stay for a little bit. It's much more permanent. It's much more of a presence. So that too denotes the same theme. And with this, the Rebbe adds as well that the, the student of text, this will help the student of text understand something else. The language here is God descended in Mount Sinai. And therefore, they have to protect the mountain because it, it can be death, God forbid, if we're not careful. God's coming down. But then we have an earlier verse in Exodus when God came down during the plague of the uh, the 10th plague, the language is, I will descend. And it says over and over, God came through Egypt and, and things happened. And while the people have to stay in their homes, we don't find that they felt this, this fear and they had to, with thunder and lightning, that God's presence made, it shook the world at Sinai. And they had to, they felt that presence and they had to watch out for it. Yes, they, in the case of Egypt, uh, of the 10th plague, they had to stay home and they had to paint their, their, their doorposts, but it was hardly comparable to the type of explosion that Sinai was, uh, the commentaries explained to us that, and the Talmud says after each one of God's utterances, they flew back. All the Jews flew back like three miles. In fact, it says they expired and God brought them back to life. Uh, it was like a nuclear explosion. You know, if you ever watched a, a, a video of, a, of a rocket ship taking off in, in, in Houston, 
and you realize because it, this was a, a, just a tiny glimpse of what it had to be like in terms of the explosion, the noise at Sinai, you're breaking through the barrier of the atmosphere. Extraordinary to the extent that the Jews asked Moses to be the intermediary after the first two commandments and God agreed. We hardly find any of this big to do at midnight during the 10th plague. And so Rashi answers that with this last line that I'm highlighting, that, that there God came by, passed over, so to speak. Here he came with the throne of glory. He settled in the throne of glory. His chair, he sat down. Albeit temporarily, God settled in. And the world felt his presence, hence thunder, lightning, and everything else. And you better be very cautious. <laughs> and that's how the Rebbe explains these two Rashis. There are many more details that I am not going into. I'm just uh, touching upon this in general. I want to just explain and take this. Then the Rebbe goes into the Hasidus. And the Rebbe tells us that there's a tremendous hint here, which is very unusual in the chapter and verse. We have chapter 19, verse 20, says one angle, and chapter 20, verse 19, says another angle. The Rebbe is going to look at those numbers and decode them mystically, which is highly unusual for the Rebbe to do. It's not unheard of, but it's highly unusual. The Rebbe even says in the footnote, that it's questionable he even wrote the chapters, we divided them, that it come from even Jewish sources or other sources. But the Rebbe said it doesn't matter. This is divine providence, this is Torah. And once it's divided in that way, there are lessons and messages. Because one can ask, what's the point of this whole conversation? Why does the Torah give these two opposite messages? It's the same story of Sinai. So why in one chapter it's saying, God came down. And that's the emphasis. And in the other chapter, right after the same story, the idea is, no, he didn't come down. One speaks about his descent, and one speaks of his loftiness. So we're going to see that herein lies tremendous lesson that's taught often in Torah and in Hasidus. That God has these two sides. God's lofty side and God's revelation descent. You might say, imagine you have a fantastic teacher a great genius, a fantastic professor, brilliant, off the charts, and he knows how to teach even a child, though. So two people could be praising the same teacher. And one will say, he's so brilliant that half the time we don't even understand what he's talking about. And it's very complimentary. We mean to say it in the most complimentary way. <coughs> His mind is so beyond that half the time we don't even know what he's talking about. Because he's, he's, he's beyond. And then someone could say about the same teacher, he's such a brilliant teacher that he takes these lofty concepts and he presents it to us like at a set table, like on a ready-made platter. It's clear, it's understood, it's perfect, it's tangible. Anyone can understand it. Now, both of these compliments can be said about the same teacher. I would assume that the great minds and the great teachers have both of these sides. Very great and very lofty. And yet at the same time, the ability to bring it down and this is a description that we use for Hashem, that Hashem is, on the one hand, infinite, of course. Nothing that you see in creation is a manifestation of Hashem's greatness in any which way. Whatever you explore and understand through creation, He's way beyond. God's loftiness, it's beyond. Conversely, 
Hashem comes down and manifests as in felt in our world, in felt in our lives. He's not hiding someplace else. These, the Kabbalistic language, Kabbalistic address for these two things would be Keser and Malchus. Keser, or the crown. That represents God's exaltedness, like a crown is upon the head. It's the highest level. It's above the Sephirot. It's above all the worlds, etc. God's crown. He's lofty. Whereas Malchut is the last of all the ten attributes, and it means kingdom, which really means influence. It means the ability to reach others. It's uh, explained to mean God's speech and action when he reaches out and makes the worlds. The highest level, God's crown. The lowest level, Malchus, God's influence, speech, and action. Says the Rebbe, this is hinted in the two, uh, on the numbers. We have 19 and 20. The Rebbe is going to explain to us that 19 is an allusion, mystically, to the lowest level. 20 is an allusion to the Keter, to God's highest level, the beyond. First, how? Let's start with the 20. Because, first of all, the word Keter, crown, is the Roshe table. The first letter of the word Keter is the letter Kaf, which is 20, numerically. So 20 is Keter, crown. Also, the Rebbe in a footnote says that the word Esrim, which is 20, is the numerical of the word Keter, which is 620. So bottom line is whenever you see 20, that's an <coughs> Chaf, the letter Chaf, 20. It's an allusion to Kesar, God's loftiness, which is spoken about in chapter 20. Because chapter 20, God speaks from heaven, God's Keter. Chapter 19, aha, this is where God comes down to earth and is revealed and is manifest down here. How is 19 connected to Malchus, to God's revelation, the feminine aspect of God, God's, the fact that he's manifest in creation and, and, and felt in the world? So the Rebbe explains that 19 is the filling of the name of God. We know that God's name, Yudke Vavke, equals 26. However, that's only if you just have the actual letters, Yud and Hey, Vav and Hey. But if you put also what's called the Mili, the filling, each one of those letters is spelled out. So Yud is Yud Vav Yud. Hey is Hey Aleph, etc. Let me show you. And when you put that filling in, you will end up with 19. Let's watch this. So you have the Yud Kei on your screen. So the left column here, this is just a numerical, the actual letters, Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, 10, 5, 6, and 5 equals 26. Got it. But then there's the Miloy, Miloy meaning the filling. I don't want just the letter Yud in writing. I want to be able to verbalize it. I can't read the letter Yud unless you write Vav Dalad next to it. Now it's, it reads Yud. Vav Dalad equals 10. So that's the milu, the filling of the yud. Hey, we can't pronounce it hey unless it has a vowel aleph next to it. It's pronounced, that's, that's aleph is numerical of one. Vav is the numerical of seven. And again, hey is the numerical of one. If you take this column, you add up just the milu, just the filling, so to speak, of the four letters, you have 19. And 19 and 26 equals a total of 45, which is the numerical of the word Adam man. And this represents God, how he manifests in the image of man, so to speak. We know God is not a man. 
prophets say that lo adam who is not a man is beyond any image. God is absolute in eternity and, and and simplicity. He's totally beyond any form, what have you. And yet, the prophet said, "I saw on the chariot. I saw the image of a man. A reference to God." And the answer is, where God, in His essence, of course, is no image, but God manifests and. He becomes, so to speak, man. In fact, we are called man because we're in the image of that God that, so to speak, has a superimposed image. And that represents God preparing to reveal, to create, to communicate, not God in his pure, infinite, in self-light, but coming down to creation. And so we see here that the number 19, which is the miloi, the filling of the four letters, allowing the letters not just to be read, but to be verbalized. And verbiage represents creation because the world was created by God's speech. Verbiage represents bringing something from what I know here to the other, to the outside. And of course, together it becomes manifestation in, 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 the, in, in the word Adam, which is also known in Kabbalistically as the Shema, the name of 45 letters. And therefore, 19 means manifestation, revelation. So as much as 20 means Removed, beyond, 19 means manifest. 20 means keter, infinity, and 19 means God being felt down here on earth. So, and the Rebbe now is going to further explain. So I understand why we have these two chapters. 19 speaks about God manifesting down here. Because that's what 19 is. The filming, the, 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 the filling, the milui of God's name. I understand why chapter 20 says God spoke from the heavens, because 20 means beyond, crown. But why do we have the reverse as well? So we know that in Kabbalah, and in anything really organic and true, every level has every other, every other level. Way of example, intellect will have emotional components to it, and vice versa. Within the emotion, you can find the ideas of the intellect. So there's going to be 19 verse 20, and there's going to be 20 verse 19. And let me explain this, which will bring home why this whole conversation is even important. Why the Torah tells us at Sinai, these two opposites. What's the use? What's the purpose? So it's explained that when, a, when you relate to another person, the rule is from our flesh, we know God because we're created in the image of God. So when a person relates to someone else, think of a real relationship you have with someone very close. It can be a parent, it can be a child, a dear friend, a spouse. So you have, you have two levels. You can have many levels, but you can have two levels we're going to speak of. You can have the external level, what that person tells me or does for me. I'm going to call that the 19, the malchut, the man, what they do. They're nice to me. They help me. That's wonderful. But then there's also what's going on inside. You know, after years and years of a relationship, you might say, but I want to know what you feel. I want to know what your soul is. I'm not happy just with the words and with the behavior. You treat me nice. You take care of my needs and whatever it is. You're wonderful to me. I want your soul. And these become the two aspects of a relationship. Two aspects of a relationship. Because the speech alone 
is external. You're telling me all nice things, you're giving me gifts, you're wonderful, but I wanna know what you really feel. So we say, this is what happened at Sinai. Pre-Sinai, God created the world how with speech. We use the metaphor, of course, of speech because speech is something that's external. You can say something you don't even mean. You can say two plus two is 10. You can lie to a person, tell them that you really care about them. I mean, speech is external. Ultimately, you can never express what you really feel. Or sometimes we use the example that creation is action. The text says in Genesis, on the day that God made, made heaven and earth. Obviously, they're both metaphors. They're both the idea that creation is something that uh, is external, so to speak, to God. You're not getting the whole story. You're not getting his soul, which really soul is the, the, the willpower, the pleasure. You're getting the message. And that's why we say the world was created with 10 words. Why did God have to say it? He could have willed it into being. If you can say the word, the world into being in 10 words, you can will it into being. And the answer is if God willed the world into being, it would feel too godly. It would not be the plan which we should have free choice and the world should be, Milosh and Helen, should be a place of concealment. So God by design didn't reveal the will. It didn't give us the Kesser, the 20. He only gave us the 19. He only spoke the world into existence or did the world into existence through the 10 utterances so that you look at the world and you see a world, but you don't really see its maker. In fact, someone could deny it. Or someone could say, I don't know where it came from. Because in, in, in an action, you can't see necessarily who did it. You just see the result. Comes along at Sinai. God says to the Jewish people, it's time for me to give you myself. For 2,000, two and a half thousand years, all the world had is my speech, my external revelation. They knew what I could do, but they didn't know me. I spoke the world into being, but that by definition means that they don't see me at all. I want the world to know me. I want to connect. I'm not looking to hide. The, hide the, the, the concealment is only a means to an end so that there should be free choice. But ultimately, the goal is going to be for the whole world to know me. Of course, this will be completed in the time of Mashiach, but it begins in the time of Sinai. And God says to the people, I'm going to give you me. I'm not going to give you my words or my action, some external thing. I'm going to give you my will. I'm going to give you myself. In fact, that's what we say in Torah. The first word of the Ten Commandments, Anochi, which is an acronym, I've given myself and written it down and given it to you in the book. And the language is, when you take Torah, you're taking God himself. You're not taking an idea. You're not taking words. You're taking him. That's what Sinai is. It breaks that barrier between heaven and earth. It breaks that barrier between 20 and 19, between Keter and Malchut. Whereas heretofore, pre-Sinai, all the world had from God are words or actions, external influence. And suddenly now, they're going to get a revelation of God's soul, so to speak. They're going to get to know him, because that's what mitzvahs are. They're God's will, Torah, it's God's pleasure. Called Shashum, the fun of God's plaything. That's why when you learn Torah, there's so much pleasure because it's God's plaything, it's God's essence. And that's the goal of Sinai. Beginning the process, which will increase more and more with the first temple, the second temple, and ultimately Mashiach, and the third temple, when it will be completed, the whole world will see it. 
And what will it see? Not just that God made the world, but that God is the God's entire willpower, his essence, his keter, his crown, his 20 will come into the 19. It's like that person that you may have had a relationship with was only external, and suddenly you're showing them a little more of soul. When we bridge this gap, says Chassidus, between 20 and 19, between God's lofty, essential, infinite self, and 19, God's manifest feminine side, verbal action, exterior, revealed self, not exterior, that's the wrong word, but revealed self, and you want to bring them together. So you have two ways to do this. You can bring the 19 up to the 20, or you can bring the 20 down to the 19. I can bring my soul into my words, or I can elevate my words into my soul. So let me give you an example. So imagine that relationship. Let's think of it as a marriage. And they're married 10 years, and it's growing, and it's becoming a real relationship. And one looks at the other, and they say, I want to express to you my feelings of this marriage and how special it is and how special you are to me. The words are cheap. Words don't quite cut it. So what happens? Suddenly they start to break down crying. They express in a tearful verbal expression their feeling. So what just happened is when, when you just brought down, you just elevated the speech to the place of the soul. On the one hand, it's speech. The person said something. They, they express something, it's not hidden. Like some people don't know how to express their love whatsoever and they just say, well, I have deep feelings. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's gotta be brought out. This person, yeah, they start to talk, but they can't say anything, they start to cry. So what they did is they took the level of verbiage, the external level of relationship and beamed it right up to the essence of their heart and soul where they can't speak and it expressed itself in tears. It's a beautiful thing. So now the other person saw a manifestation of the high level. But then there's another time when we do the opposite. You don't express the unspoken in the spoken word by crying, but rather you find a way to express the unspoken in the spoken word. You might say sometimes you'll write a nice poem for a person or a letter or a Hallmark card. You'll find very specially chosen words and they're not tears and they're not just gibberish, they're actual words that make sense. But within those words are embedded feelings that are beyond words. That's why Hallmark cards are so popular. Because on the one hand, they say they speak in plain English. On the other hand, they say things that, that are not the norm. They say things that are beyond expression. So you have two ways of connecting to the other person. On the speech level, that which you really feel which in the context of the sikha is manifesting the deepest will in words, manifesting 20 and to 19. There's two ways that you can do this. The two examples that we give. Number one is, I can't speak. I start to cry. And the other is, the other is that I, I find a way to express my deep feelings, my soul into words. If I can't speak and I start to cry means, my words were dissolved up. That's 19 within 20. My words elevated into the crown, into my soul, where they speak soul words. They don't make sense, but they're very soulful. That's 19 within 20. Conversely, no, I speak, but I speak in a way that sort of expresses soul. 
That's 20 coming into 19, the Keter coming down into the Malchus. If you think about it in a relationship, which one do you prefer? And the answer is there's a value in both. Yeah, there's times when you want to see the other person really connects to you on a soul level and they, they have no words, they just cry. They just express it, their essence is revealed. That's gorgeous. But then you say to the person, I know that you, you have such strong feelings, but I want you to tell me why. Tell me what you feel about me. Tell me the details. Don't just give me, don't just break down crying when you say my name. Tell me what you like about me as a person. And that requires words. And therefore there's a value in each. There's a value in elevating the words to the soul expressed in tears. There's a value in drawing down the soul to words expressed. The example I'm giving in a Hallmark card or, 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 or in a note or a poem or what have you, because we wanna have both. Another example might be, this is an example I'm giving you in speech. Now I'm gonna give you an example in action. This is, I'm using this other example because this example is actually brought in Hasidic uh, teachers. And that is action like speech is external. And that's why you don't see who the actor is. If I walked out my door this morning, there was an Amazon box at the door. Someone put it there, but I can't see who that is. I can't tell if it's a man, if it's a woman, if it's an adult, if it's a child, or if it's a drone. I just see the result that's the nature of action it's external it starts where i am however sometimes action does express soul and what would be the example of that an artist that's why we're so enthralled by artists and they can take their soul and put it on a paper or in a sculpture that would be the example of bringing the 20 down to the 19 bringing the will, the soul into expression, extraordinary. And then there's sometimes the reverse. It is said that sometimes if someone you love, your child, God forbid, is in danger, you can lift a car to save the child. You can leap off a building when you're in danger. You can fit yourself through small spaces and then later there's no way for you to get through those same spaces. You say, how did I get through that space? How did I make that leap and not, and not fall on my head? doesn't make any sense. How did I lift that washing machine? There's no chance that I can lift it. And the answer is because you're right, your hands and feet only have a limited amount of energy, but your soul has an infinite amount of energy. And there are moments when life and death are on the line where your hands with its limited energy is now zapped right into the soul with its infinite energy, and you can actually lift that car and do all extraordinary things. Again, here you have the same thing as the example earlier of the tears versus the hallmark car. Are you bringing the soul to the action or the action to the soul? The artist brings the soul to the action. On a piece of paper, in a physical manifestation, you see the soul. Not like the Amazon box where you can't tell the nature of the delivery boy. You can see the whole nature of the artist. It's right there. Their soul on paper, extraordinary. Conversely, when the human hand can do the, the impossible, that represents that the manifest part of the soul, namely action, has been beamed right up to soul itself, and it can do things that are impossible for a body to do. Only a soul can do them. And again, in the ter terms of a relationship, using this example, using the example of expressing soul through tears, or conversely, through a, a Hallmark card, which tells you the virtues of the other person. There's a beauty in both. 
and, and part of the reason is because when I just express, for example, my love for the other person with tears, I'm telling them how much I care about them. And that's wonderful, but I'm not speaking much about them because I'm not saying anything. I'm just breaking down in, in tears. I'm giving them my soul. That's wonderful. They know they have me, but they don't know if I get them, so to speak. Whereas if at the same time, the flip side is I'm able to express it verbally and find words that say what I really appreciate about that person. When I put my soul on paper, now I get them as well. So in any real relationship, any deep relationship, there's going to be the both sides. You're going to take the other person to you and you're going to come down to the other person. And that's what God did at Sinai. Again, to recap, pre-Sinai, at the moment of creation and for the first 2,448 years of creation, the whole world knew nothing except the fact of God's speech and action external. Like the Amazon box, it showed up. We have no idea who put it there. Like I said earlier, it could be a man, a woman, tall, short, strong, weak. It could be a drone. We have no idea. And people, in fact, uh, think that the world may have showed up uh, accidentally or whatever. I guess that's foolish. But even those who believe there's a creative, what does it look like? What does he want? You can't see a thing. The world is everything concealing God. In fact, the word world means concealed by design for free choice. He did the world. He spoke the world. But the world has none of his soul, just his words or his actions. And then God says at Sinai, no, I want to give myself to the world and to the Jewish people and through them eventually to the whole world. And that's going to be, I want him to have my soul, my will, which is mitzvahs, my pleasure, my wisdom, which is Torah. So God did that at Sinai. He broke that barrier. But he did it in both ways. He brought heaven to earth and earth to heaven. He brought his soul, his keter, to the malchut, to the lowest manifestation and the vice versa. Or in the text of the Sicha, the context of the Sicha, he brought 19 to 20 and 20 to 19. So let's go through it. God says to us, uh, God says to us, I'm giving you Torah mitzvahs. It's my desire. It's beyond reason. Somebody says, why do you do mitzvahs? Why would you put on tefillin? What's the meaning? The black straps? Why would you like Shabbos? Why would you eat certain foods and not others? And people try to rationalize and say, well, it must be healthy. It must be good. It must do this. No. Why would you want a reason? This is God's essence. This is God's soul. It's like a spouse who buys you flowers as a gift. You don't buy flowers as a utilitarian usage. You just kill the whole idea. The whole point is I want to give you. What does 800 flowers say? Say it with flowers. What does it mean say it? You're saying that it. That's something that you can't quite verbalize. You don't buy flowers in order to do something. Maybe you buy flour to make challah. But flowers have no use. They're not about use. They're about giving yourself, not giving some kind of utilitarian assistance. And therefore, so when someone tries to say, well, I do mitzvahs because they're healthy, because they make me good, they settle me, they give me a blessing in this world, the next. Stop, you ruined the whole thing. God wants to give you his essence. And you're looking at it as some kind of... Uh, assistance that he's giving you. He's giving you himself. He's giving you the whole kishka, like the person who's crying, can't even say the words. It's beyond. I'm giving you my neshama. Giving you the flowers. And yet at the same time, Torah says it's true. Don't do mitzvahs for reasons. They're way beyond reasons. They're way beyond uh, uh, reward. They're way beyond the world. They come from God's crown, which is Total infinity and simplicity. Conversely, though, do they make life work? Absolutely, in every level. Again, go back to the marriage analogy. Yes, I want a gift of flowers. I appreciate that gift that is useless 
but is really essential. But I also want to be taken care of. I also want, um, I need money, I need help. I don't just want flowers. I also want my life day to day to work as well. If you really care about me, you're not just gonna give me flowers and give me your essence. You're also gonna manifest the essence in real useful behaviors because at the end of the day, if you love me, well, I need certain things. You're not gonna just settle with expressing yourself and your essential need. And that's why, that's the two sides we have in Torah. And we, ha we have the crown, the infinity of Torah. Namely, the fact that mitzvahs have no reason. And then we have the manifestation of Torah in the reasons within mitzvahs. So dear friends, look at the sicha now. Step back and realize how deep the sicha is. That the Torah and Rashi are explaining to us in the same chapter. First it says God came down on the mountain. And then it says, I didn't come down any mountain. I spoke to you from the heavens. And the difference is expressed to the extent that Rashi emphasizes them differently. Here he says he came down. Here he says, oh no, he stayed up. Here he came down like this bedspread on the sheets of the bed. He's right there. His heavenly throne, he's sitting down. Here he's there. He's up there. Maybe he's leaning down a little bit. What's the point? And which one was it? And the answer is it's exactly the point. It was both Mount Sinai, God's making a full, wholesome relationship with us. Revealing his keter, his crown, into the malchus, into a manifestation of speech and action which is the two sides of this relationship. I'm using, expressing it in one example. There are probably many, many examples that mitzvahs on the one hand are beyond reason because if they have reason, then they're not the essence. On the other hand, they will work and they will make sense on every level and they will make life better and happier and wholesome and healthier in every single way. And, um, and that is also part of Sinai, says the Rebbe in the Sicha, and that's why we have chapter 19, verse 20. Remember, 19 means manifestation. But it's verse 20 within 19, meaning we draw 20 down to 19. We brought God's infinity into our reality. That's the first part. That's the descent. In our context now, that would be the value of Torah in real life. It makes life work. And then we have the chapter 20, verse 19. We're in chapter 20, we're in the world of infinity. But within that world, we have gone up. We have elevated the 19, we have elevated the details of life uh, to a place which is beyond life. And that in our context, uh, the current discussion means mitzvahs beyond reason, uh, total uh, infinity. You might say that this is, this is manifest in many, many areas in Torah. Uh, it's manifest by, by way of example in the most important prayer in Judaism, Shema and Baruch Shem, the two lines. They're similar. They're both six words and 25 letters, and they mirror each other. And normally they're saying very similar things. They both say there's one God and he's the boss. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Achad, one God. And what is Baruch Shem similar? May God's glory be manifest in the whole world. It's all him. However, the, the theme is different. In the Shema, we close our eyes and we recognize we don't see the world. We recognize the crown of Hashem beyond, Keter. There's only one God. And we can't do it with our eyes open because when you open your eyes, you see other things. You meditate on the truth that there's just Hashem Echad. There is nothing, which is referred to Kabbalistically as Yehuda Yilah, the supernal level of oneness where everything dissolves into nothingness. And then you open your eyes. 
and you say the same thing but in different words. And you, but here you say Baruch Shem Kivod Machutel Olam Vehad, where the glory of His kingdom be manifest. Baruch be drawn down and revealed in a name. A name means revelation. A throne means revelation. Allah Olam Vehad to the world of time and space. Meaning to say, it's all nice and good that you close your eyes, you recognize there's nothing but God. But now let me see you open your eyes and see the world and see that there's nothing but God within the world. Or in other words, God is within that world. One is the time of prayer, the time to sort of escape and say there's nothing but Hashem, which is the actual truth. And now come back and embrace your reality and find Hashem in every aspect of that reality. Which if you think about it, is the exact mirror of what we said earlier in the relationship of two people. Giving them my soul but recognizing their specific virtues. And I want to just conclude about the same things we talk about Mashiach, which is the ultimate final destination of this whole project of Sinai. But not only we broke the barrier between heaven and earth, but heaven is manifest in every aspect of earth. So you ask somebody, what's going to be when Mashiach comes? So a person will say, well, it's a whole different world. And it will be. Because we're going to, Hashem's essence will be revealed and seen by the naked eye. So it's a different world. It doesn't get any more different than that. Resurrection of the dead, then we forget about it. It's beyond. We can't even imagine it. They didn't come up with it in, in, in the most uh, dramatic films. They won't think of what will be or how extraordinary it will be. It's going to be a new world. Because Hashem is beyond the world. And then on the other hand, we say, and the Rebbe emphasizes a lot, that really the world will be exactly as it is now, except with the element of revelation of Hashem. And that's why the word Geula, the Rebbe famously said many, many times, the word for Redemption is the same as the word gola, which is exile, just adding the letter aleph, representing the one of God. And the Rebbe basically is saying the world will be what it is. And Mashiach comes, we'll have cars and trucks and houses and businesses and business connections and friendships. Everything will remain, so to speak. And yet, Hashem's presence will be there. And the answer is, which one is it? Are we going to run away from the world and see heaven, or are we going to find heaven on earth? And the answer is, I, I guess it's going gonna, it's gonna to be both. On the one hand, we're going to have Hashem's essence, and therefore... It's going to be totally new. It's going to be a beyond. It's impossible to even imagine. Hashem's essence is revealed. The revelation of God's glory, and everyone sees it. Every flesh sees it. There's no, it's, it's a whole new thing. It's a place that is revealed that to be beyond any details, infinity. Conversely, that will be manifest in every single detail of our creation. We'll have the 19 within the 20, and then we'll have the 20 in the 19. We'll have the idea that God speaks to us from heaven. And yet he descends right down here on earth. We'll have the idea, as I began earlier, the teacher who knows so much that he's beyond. He loses us. He's so beyond off the charts. And yet that beyond will be explained and brought down to each and every one of us to understand perfectly.